The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data. Stay tuned for their message on cloud security. From Washington, D.C. and around the world, this is Government Matters with Francis Rose. Thanks for watching Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news, trends, and topics that matter to the business of government. Francis is on assignment. I'm Marjorie Sensor. The Trump administration is moving to expand a pilot program meant to improve federal hiring. According to government executive, the program simplifies resume requirements and relies on subject matter experts to help assess job seekers. So far, five agencies have agreed to participate in the pilot program. A new tracker from the Council of the Inspectors General on Integrity and Efficiency logs vacancies in inspector general roles across government. According to the tracker, 11 of the 74 agencies required to have an IG still need to fill the role. GovExec reports the tracker is one of several improvements coming to Oversight.gov. Peter Gaynor is the new administrator of the Federal Emergency Management Agency. The Senate voted Tuesday to confirm him. Federal News Network reports Gaynor previously served as Deputy Administrator of FEMA and worked as a state emergency manager. The General Services Administration has done away with FedBizOps and now uses beta.sam.gov to help users identify contract opportunities. The problem is some users still aren't happy with the new website and the rollout was bumpier than expected. Joe Jordan is CEO at Actuparo and former administrator for federal procurement policy. Thanks for being here. Thanks, Marjorie. Let's talk about beta.sam.gov and, yes. and what users are encountering. What are the compl top complaints you're hearing? Yeah, so uh, I think the, the three main complaints fall in the buckets of one, surprise. So users had email alerts, save searches, uh, watch lists, all of which evaporated when um, the Federal Business Opportunities website was transitioned to beta.sam.gov. Second, the usability of the system itself. It feels very cumbersome. There are more steps to find what you're looking for. Um, you know, people are very frustrated with that. The, the RFPs are no longer structured in the way they were before. It's very complicated. It's like a long list of non disorganized, non-chronologically uh, structured documents. And then third, there's frustration with the response from GSA. I think, um, you know, the initial response felt a little bit uh, flippant, like, well, yes, we've received, they put out a statement, we received 170 complaints a day in the first couple weeks since this launch, but we received six or 800 complaints a day about how do I log into SAM.gov, so, you know, it's not that big a deal. Whereas what I'm hearing from businesses is this is significantly and acutely affecting their ability to, you know, grow their business and, and serve the federal government. Uh, yeah, that was sort of my next question is what are the real consequences yeah. for companies um, and for the government? I mean, if, if contractors can't find RFPs or, or don't see them, then that seems like that affects everybody, not just the companies. You're exactly right. It affects the agency who's trying to engage the private sector to get goods or services to further their mission. Um, and it affects these businesses who look to this website, look to this golden source of information of what agencies are looking for, what contracts are going to be uh, put out there for me to bid on and, and provide the government with that good or service. You know, I think putting in context, you've got Fed, Fed Biz Ops, which is where these opportunities are posted. Then each agency runs its contracting process. And then on the uh, other side, you have got FPDS, the Federal Procurement Data System, where all the award data sits and people can go look at that. And I applaud GSA and the acquisition community for trying to uh, more tightly integrate these systems. It's an effort that's been going on for quite some time, but unfortunately the first step uh, uh, was a bit of a foul. And why do you think that is? What, what did maybe GSA not do that they should have done to make this a better rollout and a better website? Yeah, I think first is, um, you know, for those of us in the IT community, 
we would applaud betaing a system, testing a system, putting something out there for people to, to use and play with before moving it to full production. But in this case, you had FedBizOps, a fully functional production system, and then regressed it into beta. So that, that's very frustrating. I'm not sure about that strategic approach. Secondly, you know, I wasn't in all of the meetings and, and discussions where they uh, showed and demoed this to users and had them test it and QA it, but um, clearly that, that process was lacking a bit too. You know, one of the concerns that we keep hearing is that people lost their, their searches and the saved pieces. Is there anything that, um, you know, the GSA could have done for that, or is that sort of an unreasonable expectation that you would have been able to hold on to that? You know, I didn't dig into the data architecture of, of FedBizOps, but um, typically you would expect the ability to port some of those sorts of uh, functionalities. I think GSA did say that these would go away um, after the migration. I, I think they could have done a little bit better job communicating the true impact of that. And they've also said they're working hard on bringing the email alerts and some of these functionalities back. And, and I, you know, I hope they're able to deliver on that because I think that will go a long way in, in rebuilding some of the credibility as they move to potentially bringing FPDS into this environment as well. And you, know, you mentioned sort of GSA's response so far um, that maybe you felt was a little lackluster. Have you seen any changes since then? Have you seen any responsiveness as GSA continues to work on this system? Yeah, and GSA isn't a monolithic entity, right? Sure. I mean, there's so many smart, good people who work there that I, I like quite a bit. So I don't mean to you know, be all negative, but um, I do feel like the initial response probably underplayed the gravity of the situation and the visceral feeling, right? I've been in the government and I've run a business and, and I can tell you when you're running a business, you know, something like this, that you see not just, oh, I'm not going to get this contract, but what's going to happen to my employees? These are people and their families, all those types of things. And I feel like GSA really downplayed that element, um, didn't give enough credence. I do feel like they, they're getting the message. Um, and, and hopefully, again, instead of crying over spilled milk, looking forward towards future integrations that they're able to uh, apply those learnings in the next um, you know, evolution. Do you also think there's a chance that there could be some user adaptation? Obviously, Change is hard for a lot of people, and maybe as the system both improves, but as also users get more used to it, that they'll find ways to kind of work with the current system. I think you're you're right about that. I, honestly, that's where my mind first went when the, in the first couple of days when all of my you know friends, and people, in the community were outraged. I was like, come on, this feels a little bit like when Facebook changed its uh, <laughs> you know interface. My mom called me to say such and such has gone away. But it's not that. It really was a material um, and deleterious effect on the ability to use this critically important system to the entire acquisition ecosystem. So yes, people will adapt. Yes, GSA will, in the uh, acquisition environment, will um, improve the system itself. Um, but hopefully there are broader learnings we're all taking from this as well. And with just about a minute to go, you know, looking farther ahead, are there benefits, you know, if they can improve the system and then integrate, you know, FPDS? Do you, do you see a system that, that overall potentially works better and kind of meets perhaps the goals that, that GSA had for it? Absolutely, and I'm so excited to end on something more optimistic. <laughs> I think when you look at login.gov, where you now go to get your login information for a, a variety of um, contracting and benefits-related systems, and now, you know, making the system for award management, which is what SAM is, a true system for all award management, um, I do see kind of sunshine over the hills, um, but it's been a little rockier than people would hope, and, um, you know, I'm not sure how long it'll take us to get there. Certainly. Thanks so much for being here, Joe Thanks Jordan. for having me.
Up next, improving morale at Customs and Border Protection. Straight ahead on Government Matters, what the Department of Homeland Security and Congress can do to increase employee satisfaction. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News. Customs and Border Protection ranks in the bottom 10% on the Partnership for Public Services list of best places to work in government. The House Homeland Security Subcommittee on Oversight, Management and Accountability wants to find out why morale at CBP and across the Department of Homeland Security is so low. Tony Reardon is president of the National Treasury Employees Union. Francis Rose asked him why morale is an issue at CBP. In terms of uh, the morale being low, and I will concede that, in fact, uh, morale is low. Mm -hmm. um, I think in large measure, I mean, there are a lot of, a lot of reasons, but I think chief among them is uh, the uh, lack of uh, appropriate staffing at CBP. That ends up resulting in a lot of uh, uh, overtime you know, we have people who are working 16-hour days, days on end. Mm -hmm. uh, you also have a lot of, and what seems, I'm sure, to many of our CBP officers, like never-ending temporary duty assignments away from home, that has a huge impact, not only on those individuals, but their families, as well as the, as the ports that they leave, because they're already short-staffed, yeah. and, and they're only, th that's only exacerbated. I think also, um, Francis, you've got... Um, something that is really significant that is not often talked about. Uh, employees do not feel valued. They don't feel candidly like uh, management uh, takes care of them. Mm -hmm. You've got um, uh, act a lot of uh, leadership that should be Senate confirmed who are not. Um, they're in an acting role and I think that that leads to problems. Now Separate and apart from that, you've got also just this doesn't isn't specific to DHS or to CBP, but it is to all federal employees constantly facing um, uh, pay freeze, mm -hmm. pay freezes, uh, government shutdowns, attacks on their benefits, and being called things like uh, swamp creatures mm -hmm. does not help the federal workforce. Um, one of the things that I've asked folks over the years is, is, is it possible that some of these law enforcement jobs, not just the DHS, but also we see them in DOJ and other places in government, morale is low in, in a lot of these pockets. Is it possible that these jobs are so hard, are so difficult, that maybe morale is never going to be great, could be better than it is, but maybe they just maybe we just have to reconcile ourselves to the fact that by the nature of the jobs it's going to be tough to to make these great jobs for people to do well i would say that i think uh, there are federal jobs that probably fall into that category um, with CBP and the officers um, and other employees that that NTE represents and i represent these folks love the mission they love what they do so i so I think um, there are absolutely things that can be done that will um, uh, dramatically improve morale. Um, you know, for example, I think you could um, ensure that, you know, there is trust brought back into the workplace between frontline employees and, uh, and, and managers. Managers could be held accountable. I think Congress, for example, could uh, pass the um, DHS um, Morale Act, which would help in terms of uh, uh, frontline employee engagement and also would, would provide um, for an annual um, award 
system. Mm -hmm. So I think there are a lot of things that can be done, and I think morale could actually be significantly improved. You mentioned the staffing levels at the beginning of the conversation, yes. Tony, that, that make it sound like folks are really stretched thin there. Um, is there a business case to be made that by paying all that overtime, you have somebody working basically a double shift, by paying all that overtime, we could actually hire more people, not have to work, have the folks working overtime and really not come out costing much more than what we're spending now. Yeah, you know, I think um, we're probably um, uh, far, far away from no overtime. Mm -hmm. But clearly, I, I would agree that, you know, um, I think if we had the sufficient funding to get people hired, but then we would get into all kinds of discussions about the hiring process and the polygraph tests and, you know, all these things. We can do that another day. Tom. Right, 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 right. And, and but there's, you know, you also have the issue when you get them hired, you got to make sure that they get trained. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, uh, for example, in 2020, all of the spots at the Federal Law Enforcement Training Center in Glencoe, Georgia, are taken up mm -hmm. for CBP. So although they want to get people hired, they can't even get them trained. Mm -hmm. So it's a combination of funding. It's a combination of, you know, just having the place at, at Fletzy to get them trained. So there are a lot of issues. We've about 30 seconds left, Tony. There are two potential bottlenecks here. One is DHS having the capacity to get people onboarded, trained properly. The other is Congress facilitating that with money and policy. Where do you see the big challenge there right now? Is DHS getting better as an agency at trying to address this issue? Well, I think they are getting better. And, and I will speak uh, specifically to CBP mm -hmm. because uh, I deal with them regularly. Look, they are working hard. I, I don't dispute that one bit. They're working hard to try to get people on board. And in fact, they have done a pretty good job getting rid of the vacancies. In fact, this last year was the first year that I think they hired more than um, what attrited out mm -hmm. of the organization. So, so that's good, and, and they should be commended for that. We've got to make sure that they have the funding so that they can uh, continue to hire. Um, real quick final thought. How, what's the gap look like in your view between what DHS should get and what the budget process looks like today. Well, in terms of, I, I don't know the exact dollar amount. What sure. I can tell you, though, is from, in terms of numbers of employees, mm -hmm. CBP officers, they need 2,000 more. Just to reach the workload staffing model um, that CBP has, um, that's for CBPOs and for ag specialists, for example, 731. Those are important jobs, and there are a lot of other important jobs that they are lacking the necessary uh, uh, people as well. Up next, a key part of the federal workforce is aging. Straight ahead on Government Matters, how to recruit, recruit young people to fill these important jobs. Don't forget, if you missed an episode of Government Matters, you can find it on our website, govmatters.tv. Across the government, only about 3% of the IT workforce is under 30, and more than half is over 50. Here to take a look at the troubling trend and how the government can address it, Nick Sinai is a senior advisor at Insight Partners and former U.S. Deputy Chief Technology Officer. Thanks for joining us. Hi, Marjorie. What do you think is the is the consequence of this? What, are the, what does it mean for government to have this sort of graying tech workforce? Well, I think we need the energy, creativity, and skills of the next generation, frankly. Um, and so we have to think about how are we going to deliver on government promises and that's going to increasingly be software and technology and that means technically skilled folks uh, inside of government, inside the IT workforce but also inside of acquisition and inside of the programs as well. 
What are the challenges to recruiting young people to the government? What do you see as the top reasons maybe a young person either doesn't look at or doesn't accept a job with the government? Yeah, so I mean, look at, look at the position descriptions. We say IT specialist rather than a software developer, a systems reliability engineer, a product manager, a designer. You know all of the all of the important roles, and you you see some exceptions, right? In in GSA and and uh, in the U.S. Digital Service and so forth. But generally speaking, we have a position description and a whole process that takes really long time. Uh, and so you know if if they have other options, young people are going to go elsewhere. Do you think this is a problem that needs to be addressed holistically by the government, or is it, can agencies address it on their own? What do you think is kind of the best way to tackle it? Yeah, I think I think agencies can do it. I, I'm also a fan of a, a whole go, whole of government approach where we think big. I mean, imagine a, a digital surge, right? So imagine if we were to uh, try and recruit 10,000 technical people to government over the next two years, right? And so that would in, that would include thinking about how do we reform hiring and hire faster. Uh, and how do we uh, have modern uh, environments for those for those people and have the professional development and the upskilling? Uh, it would also include strengthening the and funding the digital services, um, both USDS and, and ATF and PIF. So there, I, and then partnering with outside organizations. I'm an advisor to Coding It Forward, which helps uh, bring uh, college technical talent uh, to the federal agencies. And so I think there's some important partnerships there too. So if you, if you were able to kind of revamp the way a job sounds and looks and, and speed the process, do you think that would solve most of the problem without addressing, you know, maybe pay or work locations or things like that? I mean, yeah. is it that simple? It, it, it's, it's not that simple. Um, um, and, and pay is one piece, but I think we, we get too focused on pay. When, when, someone, uh, when we're trying to attract top talent, I mean, they're, they're looking for, uh, they want to make an impact, right? They they want to work with people they they trust and 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 people that they are impressed or excited to work with. Uh, they want to work in modern environments. They want to work on on modern technology stacks, um, and they want to have an alumni network and feel like that this next step because they're more likely to do this for two, three, five, ten years rather than their entire career. So they're going to want they're going to want a, a alumni network as well. And so we have to think about how do we make all of these things attractive to the next generation. And how do you think you reach those potential employees? Is this a matter of going out to college campuses? Is this, you know, better kind of online outreach? What do you is it? Do you, what do you think is kind of the best way to to get to these people and sell the job? Yeah, I, I think it's absolutely a marketing function inside of a talent operation function, and so that means going on campus. I mean, you see the intelligence agencies go on campus. Right, and they they recruit heavily, and so the 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 rest of the government. And if we're thinking about this kind of digital surge, we should be doing that too. But that also means uh, going online and and participating in those uh, channels and going where the audience is. And and what about um, you know the workforce that we have? Obviously, um, reskilling has gotten a lot of attention. You you hinted at that. Is that um, a potential problem solver here or a piece of it? Yeah, and I'm a big fan of the of the current federal workforce uh, and the IT workforce today. Um, and but you know technology changes quickly, and and so they they need to continue to you know we talk about continuous learning and continue to upskill. Uh, so the Air Force, for example, is launching Digital University, right? So the uh, Deputy CIO Bill Marion and the Chief Transformation Officer Lauren Knossenberger have been talking about Digital U. So how do you bring uh, online best of breed uh, platforms for for workers because this 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 day of like we're going to put people in in a classroom and they're going to train and then that's going to be useful that's not the way 
the rest of, uh, of, of industry and the private sector works, right? It, it is, is really on demand, something that is curated for your particular skill set and your career path. And so you should be able to upskill on your own uh, time, but also in, in the moment as well. And so I'm excited where the Air Force Digital University is going, and I'm, I'm hopeful the other services and even the civilian government looks at this. Do you think, though, it's a challenge to get some federal employees interested in this? I mean, if I'm a federal employee and, and happy and comfortable in the work I've been doing, what's in it for me to kind of participate in, in one of these initiatives? Yeah, that, that may be true for, for some percentage of the population. But I have to tell you, I meet all of these fantastic federal employees who have taken the initiative themselves. And so they've gone and learned analytics and, and, and AI and ML themselves, or they've, they've learned cloud skills or product management, something we've talked about in the past as a, as a skill set that needs to complement and replace uh, um, project management, which we do a lot of in the federal government. So I, I find a lot of federal employees uh, have a, a great hunger and are doing this anyway. And so let's, let's, bring, the, let's bring them the resources and let's, let's then look at that data. Let's have a data-driven talent strategy so that our executives know what, what skills the workforce really has and then be able to think about that and deploy it against the important mission priorities that uh, you know, the DEPSEC of the VA was talking about. Sure. The, um, just about 30 seconds to go. It seems to me that this could have something of a cascading effect. If you're able to bring in you know, a good surge, as you said, of, of, of candidates, then maybe they know people, they tell their friends, they say you should come work here. Do you think that if you can kind of get the ball rolling it, it sort of picks up speed? Yeah, I, I mean hiring is, is we put all these, these, these processes in place to make it objective and you, you absolutely want to review for skills and, and, and capability and those kinds of things. But people do see where their friends are going or where their, their uh, um, classmates are going and those, those kinds of things. And so those, those things will build upon each other. That's great. Thank you so much for being here, Nick. Thank you, Marjorie. I'm Sharice Hanner. You can now stay on top of all things that matter to the business of government anywhere, anytime. Subscribe to the Government Matters podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, SoundCloud, TuneIn, or simply ask your digital assistant to play the Government Matters podcast. For a quick fix of government news, follow us on Twitter. Our handle is at GovMattersTV. latest from Washington. Join us weeknights at 8 and 11 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 1030 on ABC7 to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Marjorie Sensor. The Government Matters podcast is sponsored by Checkpoint Software Technologies and Swish Data, presenting this message on cloud security. I'm Government Matters Director of Content George Jackson here again with Sean Applegate, Chief Technology Officer at Swish, and Jeremy Castleman, Cloud Security Specialist at Checkpoint. Sean, give our listeners some best practices for achieving a consistent security posture in the public cloud. Absolutely. So in public cloud, we have many different cloud providers. They have different security controls and mechanisms. To be able to control those in a single agency, we want to be able to gain visibility into your assets your inventory and your cloud environments, those different components, if you will. Using Checkpoint Dome 9, this allows us to assess and gain visibility across all of your cloud environment and their controls. It also allows us to run some quick remediations against the NIST policies to make sure you're compliant and easily report on those so you know exactly where you're at to start with. Uh, Jeremy, 
he touched on this a little bit, but what about regulatory compliance challenges here? What do you see as potential hurdles? Well, it is a tremendous challenge. Uh, it's at the forefront of most of the conversations we have today. Not only do you need to ensure compliance of your internal security policies, but you also have to meet those regulatory compliance standards, like Sean mentioned with NEST or PII. With Checkpoint's Dome 9 solution, we have a full inventory of your environment and how everything is configured already, so it's simple for us to go ahead and provide NIST compliance rule sets, for example, right out of the box. Our experts will keep those rules up to date for you, and you can simply run your assessment on your cloud platforms, and it provides you the full audit-ready report. Okay, so Sean, let's talk remediation. How should these agencies respond if they, say, fail a compliance assessment? Yeah, there's really two ways to approach that. One, take the report, in Dome 9 and use the step-by-step -step directions provided, so the just-in-time education to correct those findings, or two, leverage the technology to do auto-remediation. So as soon as you make misconfigurations or skip something, it'll take the actions to correct that. And lastly, the tamper protection capabilities really protect your administrators and those privileged accounts so that third-party hackers can't get access to those and masquerade as them in the public cloud. So again, use the reporting, the auto-remediation, and the tamper protection to protect yourselves. Great information. Sean, Jeremy, thanks for being here. For more, head to govmatters.tv slash swish. I'm Government Matters Director of Content, George Jackson. Thanks for listening. Our daily program is produced by Sharice Hanner and Ashley Gallagher. Christy Marriott leads our technical crew. Our web editor is Andrew Wagner. Government Matters was created by George Jackson. Visit govmatters.tv for articles, videos, and more, including our first feature-length documentary, The Dawn of Generation AI. Government Matters is recorded at WJLA-TV in Washington, D.C. Copyright Sinclair Broadcast Group.